Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Rizucka. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris Hemley, who's the managing partner at the Breckham Group. Chris, uh, welcome. It's good to see you again. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. This podcast is about providing really practical advice to fulfillment professionals on how to manage the back end of the fulfillment process. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear what uh, key learnings and advice that you have based on your experience, the things to do, the things, you know, maybe not to do. But before we dive in, I think our listeners would love just to hear a little bit about your professional background, your history, and how you kind of got here in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I started in the industry a, a long time ago, back in the late 80s, actually loading trucks at UPS. Along the way, got a degree in mechanical engineering and spent about half my career in operations, leading organizations, and the other half actually in project-related roles, designing, implementing facilities, process improvements, those kind of things. Made a lot of stops along the way. And finally, uh, about seven or eight years ago, decided to go out and step into consulting. And we built a team of people around going out and just doing good work for people. So within that change of dealing with a lot of different types of customers, I'm sure you've seen plenty of B2C fulfillment operations make all sorts of mistakes. What are some of the big ones you've seen? Aside from the simple ones like forgetting to order boxes before peak, those kind of things, yeah, it's, it's amazing what the industry breeds sometimes related to lack of planning and visibility, ultimately. One of the things we always talk about is the need for a solid plan. And to see organizations go into a peak season without a solid plan of what to expect and how to overcome it, it often breeds some failure, ultimately. So it's, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I read that you said the need for planning is more important than maybe the need for accuracy itself. Let's stay on that for a minute. What did you mean by that? Is planning that more important than accuracy from your experience? Oh, absolutely. Again, it's about degrees of error off of a plan, right? Too often, we kind of fall into this mindset that because it's a B2C environment that we can't plan accurately, that customers behave differently than we expected, and that the as a result, we can't count on people to show up when we want to. So a lot of times you'll see people really sacrifice that planning phase around what their operations are going to look like at critical periods. And as a result, everything then becomes a surprise to them and everything has to turn into a reactionary kind of mode. And ultimately, that variability creates failure. Yep. So you'd mentioned boxes, simple things like customers not planning for, for boxes ahead of peak, but what are the types of mistakes that online sellers just make in the planning area that's practical where it's a listener who's joining today who might be out there listening and they're going down their checkoff list? What other types of mistakes do they need to be aware of to, to prevent that you've seen happen? Oh, there, there are a thousand, actually. So some of the, the big ones are things like, when do they make that plan? We're talking to clients right now that you really need to have your peak plan in place next month. Right. And again, understanding there's degree of variability, but think about things like what's your lead time to onboard staff and recruit staffing. And, and to do that, you've got to have a plan now to start actioning in July, August, September in order to actually impact peak this year. And to that point, we see people as late as September, October start to think about what their staffing requirements are going to be like for, for Black Friday. And at that point, 
you're too late to the game. Your ability to impact things are so minimal that you're pretty much set in stone at that point. So we're a pretty difficult labor market. That's no surprise. But what do your customers tell you or the clients that you're representing when they're trying to manage or balance really high degree of expertise and high quality, but it's just hard to get labor through the door? How do you manage that or how do you balance that in today's world in logistics? It is. Is there's no doubt that the market's different today than it was, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, right? I'd say the biggest thing that I hear is that we have to raise in wages, we have to look at onboarding plans or what you know, what kind of onboarding incentives we can give people, those kind of things. And I'd argue that if we keep doing the same things we've always done in this space, right, that we're going to get the same results we've already gotten. Right. I was talking to a client not too long ago, and their idea of recruiting was to put a sign in the yard, right, out in front of the DC. And again, 10 years ago, that may have worked, but that's not how people consume employment opportunities today. It's not how not driving by. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. not driving by looking at stuff, right? They're not actively out seeking. And consequently, we have to think differently about how we engage with people and how we bring them into an operation and how we make them interested in coming there. We see things like I, I was sitting in a, a an interview for warehouse employees. We were looking at how to help the onboarding process and had a really low success rate of hiring. And we, I, I sat in this interview process and it was a traditional uh, kind of model where the recruiter was quizzing the person on why we should let them work here. Right. And it came away with a very unfriendly kind of feel to it that we weren't trying to sell why we wanted them to join the organization. We were trying to convince them to make us want to hire them. Right. And unfortunately, that's not the environment we're in. We've got to engage with people differently as a result. So oftentimes, just our entire approach about how we engage with people, how we think about staffing. One of the lines that that I've often used is that that 10 years ago, a lot of facilities and operations really treated people like commodity, that there was always another person waiting to come in tomorrow. Right. And now I think we, we view the importance of them being a resource, that they're somebody we want to convince to come work with us, that we need to sell them on why this is the right opportunity. And too often, we've not been good at that as an industry, really. When, when do you typically advise or how do you advise clients of yours when they start asking about automation and it's a buzzword and everybody wants it? When do you advise them to use it? When do you typically advise them to just go old school and, and use manual processes in terms of capital you know, investments that they have to make? When is it the right time to automate and when is it the, the wrong time to automate, especially given that constraint on labor? Yeah. And again, with the current market, it's always the right time to automate right now. And we've seen the value proposition for automation really change. We used to talk about the need to have a three to seven year payback on automation. And right now we're seeing a lot more people move towards business continuity as the justification for automation, where it's great to think that I could run this building with 500 people in it. But if I can only staff it with 250, how many sales are we leaving on the table? How many unfulfilled orders do we have out there? So consequently, it's less about just kind of the ROI and more about the impact of the business. Um, to that, however, you know, there's always kind of that right space to automate versus not. And where we typically lend some help is helping people think about really the stability of a process. Any business or any process within a business that has a high degree of risk and variability 
we tend to stay away from automation in that space because you, and automation is kind of a point in time solution that I design it for the process as it exists today and the volume characteristics and the rates and handling product or what products we're handling, all of those kind of elements. And if I have a lot of susceptibility to change, I'm less likely to encourage people to automate that. Conversely, where I have kind of point solutions that are tried and true. I'm going to pack the box the same way. I'm going to sort it to a shipping destination the same way, regardless of what's in the box. Those are processes that we look a little heavier to automate just because there's less risk in that automation, right? What two or two to five years may look like from now. I'd love, I'd love to go back to talk about e-commerce peak. The lines are kind of blurred anymore these years. Peak used to be a kind of a, a very specifically defined period of time especially in e-commerce and fulfillment. There's a lot of continuity, high peaks now that kind of run throughout the year. And you used to have time, right, to kind of prepare, not as much time today. So what has worked instead of maybe talking about what hasn't worked, what has worked if you're a listener out there who says, these are the must-dos, man, I really need these things to happen to be successful in e-commerce fulfillment. What are those from your experience and insight working with many of the e-tailers today? I'll start with one of my favorite stories of what not to do, actually. And too often we talk about ramping up second shift and and other operating models for those peak periods, right? We've got to add a second shift for November, December to get through that period or March or whenever those peaks are happening, right? And they usually do things like take their experienced leaders and try to spread them more thin across their entire organization and, and their subject matter experts doing the same thing. And consequently, it never ramps up quite as effectively as they would have liked because I've just watered down the knowledge base of how my operation works and the, and the things it takes to be successful every day. And so consequently, you never quite see the result you expected. So one of the things that we always try to educate people on is is that if I have two or three peak periods throughout the year and each of those last, let's call it a month for the sake of argument, that means the other nine months, I really need to be practicing what I'm going to do at peak, not changing my operating model for those three peak periods. So how do you run an operation and execute against the same process and KPIs day to day. And therefore, it's just about volume increase. And how do I introduce more people to that process instead of trying to re-optimize my solution for those periods? That's good advice. I like that. Actually, I just wrote it down myself and it's totally true. So it's a busy job, fulfillment. It keeps us up all day and uh, and night. How do you How do you stay productive? Any tips that you use, any particular routines that that you bring to uh, the office every day? For me personally, I work all the hours, which is probably not a great example for anybody, but it really comes down to, particularly in a fulfillment environment, right? It's trusting your leaders, empowering everybody to go do their jobs. The organizations that tend to struggle more during the year even is when you have a very centralized point of command, right? That everything has to flow through. Um, I, I found operationally that your best case scenario is allowing people to go do their jobs and as a leader, trusting them to do that. And again, not that there don't, don't need to be some checkpoints along the way, but ultimately let them do their jobs and start cascading responsibilities and roles and duties down to, to allow that to happen. Where does a general manager, somebody who's a site leader running the four walls of the operation, where does 
he or she kind of fall down typically in an e-commerce environment? And what have you seen like the really good ones do that the ones that have not been so successful don't do? I think it's I think it's a mindset almost, honestly. I, I always personally subscribe to the idea of adapt and overcome. That we know bad things are going to happen. We know that forecasts are not always going to be as accurate as we would have liked. We know that the we're going to have COVID. We're going to lose half our employees for a period of time, right? And the, the challenge is how do we adapt to those and change how we behave on a day in and day out basis to address those things? And where we see people often struggling is when they go into a mindset of here's how we operate and try to make the world conform to them. And that hardly ever actually happens. Yeah. It, it was good seeing you, I guess it's been a month now out in Modex. And, and that's always a great place to, to self-learn and to get the latest and greatest But on, on technology evolution. But where do you go to, to stay up to speed on what's available. And when you go to offer different solutions to clients, how do you stay on top of just self-development yourself? I spend a lot of time talking to vendors. I spend a lot of time talking to um, technology companies, really just trying to understand where their products are and what's going on personally. Modex is a great, a great venue for that. It's kind of that microcosm of being able to see a lot of things and interesting ideas. And honestly, going to, to a place like Modex, I always walk away with two or three interesting ideas of how to apply somebody's technology. And so that's a big resource. And then a lot of times it comes down to thinking kind of outside the box. So seeing a solution and then thinking about how it might be applied to a different application, right? Really seeing it go somewhere else in, in the market. And with that, I think that's how you start thinking about kind of interesting ways to use automation and apply new technologies. What, what do you think, Chris, has most fundamentally changed in our industry just over the recent couple of years? Not when you started, but just say in the last three to five years, what, what do you think has been the most profound or prevalent changes that uh, leaders need to adapt toward and, and any best practices on what you've seen, how people have adapted to those changes? It goes back to maybe two of the comments I made before. The first one being around our employees' commodities or resources, right? And, and I think just the way we approach people today around policies and procedures and pay structures and, and schedules, ultimately, even those types of things really have to evolve. And I think some people are are doing better at that than others. The workforce has changed for us over the past really three years at this point, probably more dramatically than at least any other point in my career. And as a result, we've got to adapt faster. And I, I think people are struggling with that. Yeah. Where do you think it's headed? Where, where, where do you think the next three years are headed from an e-commerce fulfillment perspective? I think, I think there are a couple of things. One is we started seeing some of this before COVID ultimately, but it's the idea of understanding who an organization is to their customer. We don't all have to be the fastest, right, in delivering services. We don't all have to be the low price point. We Every organization has its own unique go-to-market strategy, and it's really using that to, to mold their fulfillment model then to meet that expectation. I don't have to service everywhere in the country next day. My, my joke is if you live in Montana, people know they live in Montana. They know it takes a long time to get stuff there generally, right? No offense to Montana. But at the end of the day... If we're going into a, a 
service level conversation, we need to understand what our proposition is to that customer and do they care that it's three days versus four days or six days versus seven. And those are things that are going to help inform our decisions around the e-commerce space. Not everybody has to be fastest. If a 3PL, for an example, were to stand up a new facility today supporting e-commerce shippers and the, the 3PL just said, Chris, you have 10x yeah, the size of the budget than you think you have, where would you deploy that capital most likely? How would you spend it? If cost and budget weren't a priority, where would you make that investment? Honestly, I think it's around automation and technology, right? How do I make sure that we are really well educated on how our process works or variability in that process. So that's really data flow reporting. What are we tracking through the process? The more visibility we have, the, the higher degree of success we're gonna have ultimately. And, and, and when you refer to automation and, and, and data, so do you view data as a form of automation, data visibility or transparency? Is that become a type of automation when we refer to that? It is. Too often we still see people using clerical positions to track productivity and things like that, right? Which, you know, is necessary in a lot of organizations. But the more real time and the more accurate that information is, the better off we're going to be. And it's about how do we optimize automation as much as anything. To me, it's a to me, data is the optimization tool, right? It's that if I have a process or a, a solution out there that for me to best use it, I have to understand how it's performing constantly. What are my inputs and outputs to it to really maximize it? And that's where the data comes in. And we see too often that it's something as simple as not having good reporting around how many open replenishments I have in a distribution center, right? Leads to pick inefficiencies that lead to less volume going out the door. The better we have line of sight to those things, the better we can then address it and ultimately keep a consistent output. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at amwarefulfillment.com. So I, I know there's different types of operations and it's, I don't want to paint with too broad of a bu- uh, brush, but for a general manager who might be listening today in a company in the fulfillment space, what would you tell them? One of the challenges that they have is time, right? Time is time and how they manage it and they get through all this plethora of data and responsibilities. What would you tell that general manager of this is the thing you have to do each morning by 10 a.m., 11 a.m., what are the good GMs out there doing early in their day? I'd say it's probably threefold. The first one being, one, just how do I interact with people, right? People feed off of how the leader performs, right? So for me personally, it was about how do I go out and and make myself visible to the ops team, to the leadership team, or to the hourlies on the floor as well, right? And that doesn't have to be large and intrusive or anything, but definitely be present. I'd say the second thing is understanding what the plan for the day is. The sooner we understand what we're doing today and how that's executing, the more successful we're, we're going to be. 
And sometimes, depending on the size facility and, and how involved the GM is in that process or not, sometimes it's just validating that the ops team has a good plan. Sometimes it's actually helping build that plan, but we should know what everybody's doing all day today. Is there any magical scorecard or data that you rely on, or is it just uh, case by case, depending on the organization and whatever WMS systems that they're using, or do you have a, a tried and true format that you typically pull data from? I use an old mantra of people, service, and profit. So every organization takes a little different take on that. But is what is my people metric that I need to pay attention to? Is that you know absenteeism? Is it my turnover rate? Whatever that number is, right? It's service. It's SLA failures that I have yesterday. What's my projection for today? And then from a cost perspective, it's my my U, my UPH or cost per unit or again whatever that metric is. But understanding how I'm performing there as close to real time as possible. Possible. Chris, uh, where can uh, people go to find more about Breckham Group uh, online? <laughs> we have a website. I laugh because I'm <laughs> sorry in advance for anybody who actually does check it out. So BreckhamGroup.com is where we're at. Feel free to reach out to us. Like I said, we our niche in the market has really just been kind of good practical operations and engineering type people. That We've all been there and been in the trenches and done this for a long time, unfortunately. And so the website reflects that, which is why I say I'm sorry uh, to begin with. <laughs> Very good. I've checked it out. I know you well. Chris, thanks for taking some time out of your day to share about Breca, what it does, your insights, providing some practical advice. I've made several notes here myself. And uh, thanks for all the listeners today joining us. This concludes our episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment episode. So be sure to check us out next time. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>